Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and back on the show for the second week in a row, amazingly enough, it's David Scott. Hello, Dave. Fantastic, Paul, and thank you for the introduction, uh, and great to be back again. Uh, also on the show this week, a regular guest now on Devils and Details, and I'm delighted to have uh, her back, a brilliant analyst um, and a regular commentator on Business Insider and all sorts of other publications as well uh, on the trajectory of the Australian economy and the global economy, and I think particularly with reference to the domestic consumer, Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Hi, Joe. Hi, and thanks for having me. I always enjoy coming on your podcast. Um, so uh, I was just saying before we uh, started recording that um, I'm in a rather good mood because um, somebody made something very clear to me. I, I saw a presentation earlier today, which was by an equity strategist who very solemnly proclaimed that his strategy was to buy low and sell high. And these are the kind of things where, you know, it really makes you think that isn't, isn't this all so simple, Dave? Incredibly simple. That's where I've been going wrong all these years. Just as uh, simple as that, you know, buy low, sell high. I got it the wrong way around once. Oops. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, of course, if you were talking about Bitcoin, uh, that would have made you a handy, uh, handy sum of money recently. That's right. We, uh, we, were, look, we were just looking today, um, the day we were recording, um, and I imagine um, by the time we're recording this, the price will have changed by at least 5%, um, if not 10 um, But Bitcoin just blew through 2500 US dollars. It did, and well, on its way to twenty six hundred. So you'll see. Uh, I know there's uh, one of our very famous uh, people that a lot of people follow on Twitter is uh, saying that he'd be very upset if it, uh, he wakes up tomorrow morning he won't see it at three thousand US uh, at Bitcoin. So we'll see where it ends up. But it's been a remarkable run. It's uh, blasted through twenty one hundred, twenty two hundred, twenty three hundred, twenty four hundred, twenty five hundred this week alone. I remember writing the story where it, where it initially blew through one thousand US dollars. And that was everybody was going wild at it. Um, but uh, this has become um, a pretty fascinating story. Um, it has otherwise been largely quiet in markets. So um, this week with Joe on the show, we're going to talk about, I think, what is probably one of the most important issues facing um, the broader economy, um, a challenge for the RBA, um, a challenge for businesses and a challenge for households. And that's the weakness in household consumption um, and in household spending and obviously the high levels of debt that are um, driving some of that. Joanne, um, one of the reasons that I'm excited to have you on here to talk about this is when we did our Christmas special and we looked back uh, at um, the best and worst calls of the year, uh, one of them that I called out was specifically from you, um, which was in terms of the best calls of the year, which was that we were starting to see in the middle of last year a slowdown in household consumption growth, um, household balance sheets being a little bit stretched, and people just maybe reining in their spending a little bit. Um, where do you think we're up to now? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for calling out a good call. So, you know, they don't always get recognised, but uh, it's clearly playing out. Uh, what's interesting, I think, in the retail space is that we saw 
uh, retail price inflation weaken, you know, 12 to 18 months ago. So we knew that retailers could no longer pass on increasing costs. We knew they were under enormous competitive pressure, both from uh, internet sales and also from foreign companies actually opening up brick and mortar stores here in Australia. But what we're actually seeing now is the demand side also come into play. So if you look at the last quarterly retail sales number, uh, retail price inflation is still very weak, but actually retail volumes are very weak. So, you know, now we've got this sort of double whammy of you can't pass on any uh, increase in cost and there's no sort of increase in your prices. And at the same time, now demand is slowing down. And I, th- I think there's a few factors around that. Some of it's cyclical and some of it's structural. And it's certainly not unique to Australia. And one of the issues here is obviously that there's a very good case that the next move for the RBA might be to cut. But there's equally a good case that eventually they will start there's a reasonable case to be made that they, eventually they will start to have to lift. So I think the message that households are getting is that we're in a wait-and-see mode. And with everything else that's happening in terms of the downwards pressure on retail spending, just that dampening effect, it just seems to be everywhere. The little things everywhere. But it includes this messaging from the RBA that, look, we're waiting to see how things kick in for a while. Uh, look, I think that's right. I think there's actually lots of factors weighing on households. And we've seen that in our own uh, ANZ Roy Morgan weekly consumer confidence survey. You know, it's trended lower this year. And what's been evident in the sub-indices of that is that the questions that we ask around personal finances, both today, but more importantly, your finances in the future, have trended lower and are now below their long-run average for the first time in several years. So I think from a household point of view, uh, you, so all of a sudden you're sort of facing this environment where you've had low wage growth for a long time and you have this feeling that it's entrenched now, whereas I don't think we had this feeling it was entrenched 12 months ago. Uh, you've got house price growth. It's been really strong, but every time you open the newspaper, we're talking about house price bubbles and the housing market's going to collapse and you're not going to see the price growth that you've had before. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, sharp increases in energy price bills, electricity and gas bills. So that worries people. Even in the budget, you know, you look at uh, the increase in the well, proposed increase in the Medicare levy. That's, you know, that clearly hits consumers' hip pockets. And actually the surveys around whether the budget, uh, whether you'll be better off or worse off after the budget, you know, we're, we're quite poor. You know, most households, well, 50% of households think they'll be worse off after the budget. So you've got all these sort of things weighing on you. And, and as you said, you know, as a central bank that sort of looks stuck between a rock and a hard place in a sense, and, and also high household debt. And of course, the RBA themselves have sort of made this point that actually cutting rates, when you think about it in the last sort of couple of years, what has that done? It's actually for spruce sort of household debt. So whilst uh, consumption may be weak, and it is 60% of your economy, so it's really, really important, uh, it may be weak. Cutting rates actually just um, strokes household debt and leaves households vulnerable to anything, whether that's an increase in the unemployment rate. And, and that's the other thing. The unemployment rate has stopped falling. It hasn't necessarily trended higher, but no longer falling. So all of a sudden, households Uh, are more vulnerable and they themselves see themselves as more vulnerable. So David, this is a really interesting question, isn't it? Because like, if you think about what the RBA would maybe like to do if they wanted to stoke a little bit of inflation. They'd like to cut rates, but unfortunately there's the thing called the housing market, the whatever the six over six trillion dollar behemoth that it is, which is uh, unfortunately uh, dictating a lot of policy at the moment. Uh, 
So much for uh, for the talk about inflation uh, and, and unemployment uh, and the mandates from the RBA. It seems to be like the, the third or the fourth mandate, the unofficial mandate at the moment, is the uh, is the household sector, in particular housing prices. So um, let's uh, stack up some of these um, downward pressures that there are on uh, inflation um, and also um, the overall household outlook, right? So, Joe, um, debt, obviously, let's start with that. Um, what else? What are the other drag factors on, sure. on, on household consumption? Well, well, debt's a big one. Um, also, the labour market, as I said, the unemployment rate's no longer trending down. And not in the last couple of months, but in the last year or so, there is this tendency toward part-time employment rather than full-time employment. So underemployment is very high. And that is people that have a job but want to work more hours or traditionally have relied on overtime and they're not getting those overtime hours. So that's a real weight on household income. Uh, and we think wage growth remains weak for, for some time to come. Uh, as I said, you've also had energy uh, bill increases, and there's more of that to come, uh, the proposed Medicare uh, levy. And, of course, we've also had out-of-cycle um, out rate hikes from the banks, uh, which is also hitting predominantly investors, but you know, is leaving this sense that actually my mortgage rate's as low as it's ever going to be and that the next move may be up and I'm highly indebted and now my house, house price growth isn't going to be as strong or in some markets may fall. Uh, you know, so, so, so there was one, one on. calculation that I saw from uh, from somebody who said, "Look, if they the, the way they've done these out of cycle uh, rate increases, uh, particularly on interest only loans, um, the way they've done that, it, the, they've calculated that in terms of the consumer sector, that has dragged about three hundred million dollars in spending. Now, not huge in the overall composition of household consumption, but it's yet another." small little chip um, that's uh, that's coming um, at, at this, this relentless pattern of things that are chipping away at um, where you would hope to see um, for solid, sustainable, um, healthy growth. Um, there's just these the hits keep coming. Look, I think that's right. And the consumer is 60% of our economy. So if you want to see the economy as a whole growing at trend rates, you know, around 3% or a little below, it's very hard to achieve that if your consumer is not growing close to 3% or a little bit below. Uh, and the consumption numbers do look uh, do look weak. And, of course, at the same time, uh, the residential construction cycle has peaked. And if you believe the construction work done data this week actually is coming off faster than people expected. So I think we could be in for a period of sort of slightly lower growth than we've been used to. David, um, there's an important factor here too, uh, which is the wealth effect from housing, which we've been talking about for years. Um, as being something that's underpinning uh, household consumption growth. Uh, how significant do you think this might be? So we covered this this week. There's just a very slight easing now um, in the growth rate of the Sydney and Melbourne property. But an expect uh, expectation of a much bigger slowing. You haven't had much slowing now, but I think consumers now suddenly think – House price growth is going to slow and maybe dramatically. Sorry, it's only growth. But the yeah. funny thing as well, you've seen that the propensity to save households are now becoming. In the past, what we saw in the uh, the December quarter last year was that uh, households saved left and spent more, and that when it helped go and boost GDP through consumption. Now we've seen that the uh, the retail sales uh, volumes that went through in the March quarter were 0.1, um, so much weaker. So you've got this whammy effect where people are looking where house prices are going in the future and they're going oh hang on a second we're not going to have these huge increases that we've seen there may actually be like in a period of steadiness or even 
God, God, no one actually would know. Maybe some declines, and people are going, okay, well, maybe, maybe we have to go and like you know, start saving a little bit more money. Uh, you take that out, you take, you know, what's going on with your disposable incomes, which are getting squeezed. You've got higher energy prices, higher petrol prices, as Joe said, out of cycle uh, rate increases. All of this is now playing into a wing where people are going, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to go and buy that item. Uh, maybe I'll go and hold off and see what happens, uh, see what happens to my wages next year or something like that. And if many Australians do that at once, then we have a problem. So I think that's right. Actually, sorry to inter- interrupt. We did have quite a sharp okay. fall in this. <laughs> I, I love it when people talk over me. It's, it's actually, it's a, I would prefer it's, more It's, it's the Joe and David show. Here. Yes, please. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks for coming, Paul. <laughs> uh, sorry, what I was going to say is uh, there was quite a sharp fall in the savings rate in the Q4 national accounts. Now, it is quite volatile and it does tend to get revised and it, it is a bit of a residual in the numbers. But our assessment is that decline in Q4 was unintentional by households, um, unexpected. Uh, so we actually think that households in the next couple of quarters will actually rebuild their savings. So we're looking for a, a slight tick back up in the un- in the um, savings rate uh, and at a time when, you know, wages are still under pressure and, and we've got things like energy prices and out-of-cycle rate hikes from the banks. And you, you put that down pressure. to weak income, what, uh, that, that decline, unintentional decline as you, as you call it, you put that down to incomes being squeezed so much to go and try and keep up with, you know, what they had been used to in the past? That's right, weaker than expected income growth, whether that's from your wage growth or because our average hours worked have been quite weak as well. So there's two things uh, I'd like to uh, ask about here and let's try and break this down. One is um, the retail sector, right? So um, maybe I'd like to ask you both how, how you think about this. The relentless downward pressure on retail prices for a whole bunch of goods that we all buy every day, um, very hot competition in the FMCG sector, um, but also things like um, music, movies, all the stuff that we consume on a day-to-day basis, very, very heavy caps on those prices. It's very hard for anybody who's in a business selling stuff over a counter to try and push those prices up because the, the competition's everywhere, and particularly on, on the digital side. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for you know fashion particularly, um, but also when, when we look at beauty, healthcare products, all of that kind of stuff, very, very intense pressure. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, so I'd like to ask you how you both think about that, first of all, and then I want to ask you about wages. So, Joe, how do you think about this? I think the retail piece in Australia is really interesting. And as you, as you know, I spend a lot of time talking about it, um, you know, on, on all facets. Uh, look, I think there's lots of things happening. Uh, I think the digital piece is really important, although online sales in Australia is relatively um, small, uh, certainly compared to well, particularly the UK and even the US. Uh, and But also we've had all these foreign firms uh, opening up stores in Australia. And the pressure is, is broadening. You know, traditionally it's been around sort of supermarkets and clothing, footwear, um, cosmetics, that sort of thing. But even the RBA themselves have commented in the latest SOMP that this retail pressure is broadening and we're seeing it on homewares, furniture, hardware, uh, the latest one, sporting camping equipment. Uh, You know, we're seeing foreign firms open up in Australia at a record rate. And we've seen some high-profile Australian retailers go into voluntary administration. But just this week, we've heard that Topshop have gone into voluntary administration. So uh, that gives you uh, an idea of how much pressure there really is. So you go through the casualty list, it's like Payless Shoes, Rhodes and Beckett, 
Dick Smith. Yeah, Herringbone, um, uh, Pumpkin Patch, it, Mar- uh, David Lawrence, Marx. You know, they're big names. Get, and the structural issues facing the industry. Uh, somebody explained the Amazon uh, proposition to me um, very lucidly recently. He said, look, traditional retail works like this. You have a warehouse. Um, then you ship all of that to a store and to lots of stores and then where, where people come and they and you have to man those stores and you have to man the warehouse and people come to the store and that's where they purchase the goods. Amazon takes out the store, right? Which is if you think about the vast cost that goes into selling a good to somebody, there is a giant amount of it um, that is sitting in the physical reality of the store. So, and the thing is, consumers love this. They love the delivery from the warehouse to them. So this is going to be a relentless trend uh, in all sorts of retail. Sure, we'll, we'll all have shops where we sure. go and look at things and experience things and touch things, all that kind of thing. Um, but th- this is now a proven model um, that is not going to go away. Um, so um, in terms of the amount of trade that gets done within the retail industry, uh, which is a a giant employer um, within the economy. There might be a lot of volume, but with prices having this cap on them, um, that continues to squeeze profitability and it hurts firms' abilities to invest and innovate. Invest and employ. Mm. You know, the the job spit is a really important piece. And actually, Amazon, uh, they have sort of a two-stage process. They have these uh, enormous silos, for want of a better word, where they hold all their goods and then they have these smaller distributions. Those silos are manned by, by robots. By and large, so Amazon is not uh, uh, not a big employer. But there was a really interesting article out this week, actually, by an equity broker. Uh, to continue your opening Did, theme, does he buy low and sell high? <laughs> I hope so. But uh, but actually, they made the point, and I thought it was a really interesting way of looking at the retail piece uh, that. The in-store experience uh, that retailers need to think about that as a ticket to enter my store, right? Mm. So you are buying a ticket uh, to enter the store, which means that you want something for your ticket. You want an experience. Uh, and look, people are happy to pay for an experience, women probably more so than men, but you've got to offer up an experience that makes that ticket to enter worthwhile. And I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about the actual retail experience. And I think we will continue to have uh, retail stores, but but they're going to offer something different. You know, you'll go in and you'll experience something and then you'll buy it online. So they're not holding stock uh, actually in the store. And I heard recently, whether or not this comes off, that uh, there's a car dealership looking at opening up inside one of the Westfields. So you'll be able to go in and actually sit in the car and touch it and feel it. And then you'll be able to go down to the car park and drive it. And then you'll uh, design it and order it online. And so I think that's sort of where we're heading. Yeah, yeah, um, which um, puts – if you think of what Parramatta Road is like here in Sydney, right, which is you know, largely car dealerships um, and um, out-of-business uh, music stores and um, dress shops and uh, all of that kind of thing, um, they're there because um, there's a physical space necessary to do the car dealing, whereas this is – what you're talking about is in, as a, a new and innovative way for you to experience purchasing a car that – doesn't have the tax associated with it, which is going all the way to a place that you don't necessarily want to go to 
um, and is kind of out of the way. It's yeah, that's right. You can buy your car and do your grocery shopping at the same time. Dave, can I ask you quickly about the wages question? Joe touched on this uh, as well. Um, this retail sector, obviously, you know, profitability is so, such an important driver of the ability of, of these companies to grow. Um, they need to have margins. They've got this downward pressure on them. There's all sorts of pictures. And we talk about this being the worst chart in the world, which when you look at um, the wage price index, every quarter it's like, surprise, um, it's it down is, again. It is slightly depressing, even, even when you include bonuses, which is uh, is growing even slower year on year. Yeah, so what are we down to now? 1.8% private sector? Yeah, just a, just a tab below, and it's even uh, less than that for uh, when you include bonuses for those who are lucky enough to go and get a bonus. Can I ask you, what, what do you think are the factors that are feeding into this very, very low wage growth? I did hear one thing um, today which I thought was very interesting take on it. If you were driving trucks three or four years ago in Western Australia and you were earning 200 grand, you're now over in um, New South Wales as everybody migrates over to the, the busier parts of the economy where there's demand there. Um, but the salary and the supply of labor is much higher. So the salaries and obviously the profitability, as, as we were just talking about, in those supply chain-driven industries is lower. So the wages are lower. So you've gone from 200 to 100. So there are people who have literally had their salaries halved um, as we've come off this boom. Um, that's my little two cents. Um, but can I ask you um, what you think are the various other factors that are feeding into this um, really big drag that we're seeing on, on, on wages growth? Uh, I think there's two simple ones. You did touch on one, which is uh, which is a kind of a auxiliary uh, reason when we've seen there's no there's absolutely uh, no uh, no question in understanding why mining sector wages are growing the slowest of all at the moment. Uh, it comes down to soft domestic economic conditions and soft labour market conditions, and the two are symbiotic. Uh, and that's the the key thing for me. Uh, another one, which is uh, another factor which is driving wages lower, is also that we've had such low inflation as well. A lot of uh, wages are set off the inflation rate, uh, and when you're seeing inflation, which has fallen to levels that are uh, unprecedented, not not been seen before, uh, that has also had an impact and where the expectation for inflation is as well. Mm-hmm. So, I would agree, actually, to, to spruik our own research. We actually did some modelling around this, and the two biggest drivers of low uh, wage growth, according to the modelling we did, was underutilisation in the labour market and inflation expectations. People will take work for a, a few days' work for a lower price. Well, I think if you're somebody, you know, we think of underutilisation as being part-time jobs, but actually there's plenty of full-time workers that are also, you know, would like to work more hours, so categorised as underutilised labour. So if you're a firm and you're lucky enough to see a pick-up in demand, the first thing you do is offer more hours to your existing wage um, force, uh, your uh, workforce, sorry, at the same wage rate. So it's very hard to see an acceleration in wages until you've actually utilised that number of hours, you know, if you think of it as number of hours that people want to work more at the same wage rate. I'm going to put one other thing on the table um, that I think uh, is interesting, something that I've started to think about um, over the last couple of weeks after I interviewed Ian Golden, who's the Professor of uh, Globalization and Development at Oxford University in, in England. Um, it's back in the podcast stream if uh, anybody wants to have a, a, a listen to it. But one of the things that he was talking about was we're now on the brink of this sort of rapid deindustrialization where um, a lot of automation is going to come into 
to pretty routine and basic tasks. Now, I think certainly in accounting and in some parts of law back offices and probably in finance, this is starting to creep in, very hard to quantify at this point. But basically, the technology is getting better. Um, it's servicing clients better. It's creating better products and it's allowing companies to operate more profitably and with less waste. But the consequence of that is there's some pretty simple things where people would get the start in their career. Um, after they've come out of university, the first things they would do would be to start processing an order or start um, filing, whatever it is, um, st uh, drafting basic legislation and in uh, if that's a, or drafting basic contracts if you're in a law firm. Um, so these kind of things are just slowly, I think, and I think it'll be really interesting to see the labor force research from academics and also to see this coming through from the business community, what is actually happening on those to those frontline entry-level jobs, which are the low-paid ones, but they're also the way that you learn about everything um, at the start of your career as a professional. So how do you get your grounding? I think um, that's a really important issue because that sort of hands-on training uh, doesn't and can't happen at university or at school. You, you actually have to go through and do those things. You have to go through and do an audit or you have to be a, a penciler for a, for a trader or uh, draw up contracts, as you said. So, I, I but, but also in journalism. Um, so I started, you know, some of my first jobs were writing stories about car crashes. Um, I used to write uh, reviews of plays at small bars, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but the car crashes, three people died in you know, um, these circumstances um, at this time um, and police are trying to identify the victims, all of that kind of stuff. No, there's not going to be people writing those stories in five years' time. Um, that'll all just arrive. It'll just come to life by, some. I think, some machines. And I think the smart media companies will be the ones that are u using that and then getting smart people, creative people, to do the more creative um, heavy lifting stuff. But... What that does is obviously change the development path, right? So because we always focus on, well, this is how you develop. This is how you build your skills, build your, build your toolkit. And Dave, you would have seen this uh, in the trading rooms over over the years. Oh, yeah. I became an expert at uh, remembering the, the coffee order each morning uh, <laughs> and, uh, and everything else and what's, what's for lunch. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a valuable experience. And, of course, as you said, as technology improves and automation occurs, you're going to have less and less opportunities to go and do that. The one thing that strikes me, though, we're talking about the younger workers entering the workforce. The thing I think about is the people who are currently doing manual labor jobs uh, and lesser skilled roles, which are also very uh, – they could be disrupted uh, very, very easily. Uh, where that will leave those workers uh, – say, people who are in their 40s now who have still got a considerable period of time left in the workforce, how that's going to go and affect them moving forward as well. Like what skills are they going to be able to go and learn in their 40s or 50s to be able to go and participate in the 21st century, this age where everything's becoming automated, where it's all about the internet uh, and technology. Uh, it's very simple to say, like, oh, no, you can just go and do a couple of short courses. But if you've got no experience in the industry or how those things work, uh, it's easier said than done. Uh, absolutely. And I think it's going to be really interesting for companies thinking about how they use their human capital or mm. Um, human resources or people and culture or whatever the term is these days, I, I'm not sure. Um, but like, how do you continually reskill and upskill 
um, your existing workforce um, to help you create value for people um, when a lot of things can be done very simply um, and, and, and delivered to people. Like we talk about, you know, let's go back to Amazon. Um, I need X product um, and it sits on shelf Y, um, you know, level D, and a robot goes and gets it, sticks it in a truck, um, and eventually the truck will not have a driver and the, tr- the truck will ar- arrive at your door. Yeah, you'll, you'll have a maintenance crew uh, that will go and work in the machinery. And all those work out, uh, warehouse workers, I, I worked in a warehouse going through uni, uh, or just they weren't, those roles won't exist anymore. So it does leave, where are these people going to be working? And this sort of plays into, you know, where we started actually, the whole uh, discussion around households and uh, their concern about future finances. Job insecurity uh, has remained quite elevated post-GFC. Now, some of that might be this sort of idea of dread risk after the GFC, but some of this is around the whole AI and technology piece. Uh, you know, people can see it. Average people can see that their jobs are under threat and, and, and there's very little sort of employer-employee loyalty and all those b- bits come into it. But, you know, I think that job insecurity piece is really important. And when that's uh, – let's go back to where we the, – the, the bit that we got to after that, which is yet another little drag on household spending. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, I'm not really sure where I'm going to be in two years' time, so – I'm just going to hold off on that little extra bit. And it's, um, it's not just that. It's I'm not sure where I'm going to be in two years' time, and I've got a lot of debt, mm, right? That's the big one. That's it, right. Those, those households that are still got a mortgage, you know, that well, well and truly over a third of uh, all households are still got a mortgage. Many new entrants to the market have got a very, very large mortgage, particularly if they live in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, and when you have that mix coupled with the insecurity about your job, no, it's, I don't blame anyone for wanting to go and, and tighten the purse strings and say, well, I'm not going to go and spend. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. And David, the Australian dollar, 75 cents. It is. What I happened? Think, what's, what's happened? It's done very little, actually, over the last week, if that's what you're referring to. It's in a <laughs> modest uptrend. Um, yeah. So I, I want to ask you about one big thing that's happening at the moment, which is this OPEC meeting, um, probably the only, apart from Donald Trump, either imploding or whatever the reverse of... Um, getting a photo with the Pope exploding. as well. Yeah, getting a photo, gets a photo with the Pope. Um, uh, but we've got this OPEC meeting. Um, why does it matter? Um, and if there is a, a pullback in supply, how might this play out for, for Australia, for the Australian dollar and for the Australian economy? Oh, it's a real interesting question. Um, look, first and foremost, it's very likely that we're going to go and see at least a, a nine-month extension. Uh, Saudi Arabia's come out and uh, agreed to that. Uh, uh, Russia's have gone and agreed to that as well. So you've got two very big heavy hitters who have both said they want to go and do the same thing. We'll see what plays out tonight. Our time, we're recording on Thursday here before the meeting. Um, if they do go and keep production unchanged or uh, unchanged and they do it for nine months, I'm not sure exactly you're going to see any move in the, uh, in the, in the crude. In fact, you probably actually see a, a, a buy the rumor, sell the fact scenario because this has been priced into markets and we've seen crude has, uh, has gone on a, a huge rally over the last week or so in anticipation of this news. Uh, and when we say huge rally, what are we talking about now? Over 10%. Yeah, right. So uh, it's rebounded uh, from the from the lows when I was away. Uh, it's uh, it's up well and truly over ten percent. No, probably twelve, thirteen percent at the moment. Um, so for somebody to actually excite the market, it's going to be have to be something new. So it's either going to be a skirmish where they say no, we're not going to go and do this. The the deal unravels. Look, it's very unlikely uh, that that would occur. 
uh, you'd have to see a deeper cut in production or a longer uh, postponement of uh, or keeping this cap on for, say, like 12 months, uh, which, again, is kind of mm, – it could happen, but it's probably not likely to. If you had one of those scenarios where it was bullish for the, the crew price, I think the Aussie dollar would naturally kind of react, and more so because of the chain effect that you have from – the crude price and then the cost of production for uh, other minerals such as iron ore and coal, it's a very big expense uh, for miners to go and do that. And you saw in 2016 when uh, crude prices bottomed, you saw a lot of other things start rallying at the same time, iron ore, coal, a lot of uh, commodities all rallied in unison. And whilst that was partly due to what we were seeing in China at the time, a lot of it was to do with the fact that crude prices a huge input for these miners to go and produce these things was also rising at the same time. So that's the one thing. If you see some sort of shock announcement from OPEC, in my opinion, uh, that it pushes the crude price up, say, 5 10% over the next little bit. The ripple effects. You, you probably would see a bit of a ripple effect through commodity markets as well, and that would probably support the Australian dollar. Joanne, you uh, were a currency strategist uh, in, a, in a previous life as well. Um, how do you see this affecting the Australian dollar and the transmission through to um because we sort of think about opec as well this uh, is the gulf states um ha- having a conversation with themselves but actually the impacts can be quite real oh absolutely um i mean i guess you've got opec on one hand but you've also got the uh, potential in the oil market for increased supply from um from u.s shale oil so you know that's obviously been a game changer in, in recent years and arguably sort of caps the upside that you could get. I mean, we actually do think uh, oil prices will end the year a little bit higher than Because in they terms are of now. shale production, they've pulled it back. They have. And they but can just as switch the price it back goes on. on, well, it's not quite a flicker switch, but yeah. uh, but they get to a point where it's profitable to, to start pulling it out of the ground again. So, uh, so in that sense, you know, that kind of caps your, your top side. You know, I don't think you're getting an oil shock like we've seen, uh, you know, previously. But um, it, it is important. I, I think uh, the, the Australian dollar is actually really interesting at the moment despite the fact it's actually been quite stable. Uh, you know, it's sort of caught, caught in a fairly tight range and really hasn't done very much uh, for a few months now, and we, that's not uh, unprecedented. Uh, but basically, effectively, what you've got now is commodity prices actually look quite good. And, you know, under the scenario that you get um, a bounce in the oil price and generally a lift in commodity prices is obviously positive for, for the Aussie dollar. But the flip side is you potentially got Fed funds rate going above Australian cash rate uh, at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future. And, and, and that is very unusual, and, and that is certainly a weight for the Aussie. So it's kind of caught uh, a little bit uh, in these cross-currents. And, of course, the other thing for the currency is uh, we've had heightened geopolitical risks, uh, undoubtedly. Now, you know, we've been talking about Trump for some months, but that seems to, uh, you know, we seem to be past sort of the euphoria Trump reflation trade, and, and now it feels a little bit uh, less positive. Um, but also lots of other developments, you know, North Korea, South China Sea, uh, obviously what's happened in, in Manchester. Uh, you know, so, that, so there's a lot out there. And in general, the Aussie's a fair-weather sailor. It's a currency that does well in, in good times. So uh, we actually still think, despite the fact Commodity prices might uh, push a little higher. We still actually think the the Aussie has um, a bit more downside to go. You know, um, as a very experienced strategist uh, used to say to me, get up in the morning and if you're wondering how global markets are feeling, just look at the Aussie. Um, If it's up a little bit, uh, things are good. And if it's down a little bit, 
then things are bad. If it's moved a lot, then there's something material has happened um, in the global economy. So I, I think uh, that's right. I think it's quite a good barometer of sort of risk sentiment, right? Yeah, Aussie. I'd go Aussie yen was, was one of the yeah, ones. Yeah, absolutely. That, Aussie yen or euro yen. Euro yen not so much nowadays, but Aussie yen was definitely like the first thing I'd go and look at because that was like, yeah, that's up. Yeah, the world is good. If it's down, oh, something's terrible. It's it's one of the things that you've actually shown me where you look at, um, particularly if the Aussie's falling a lot against the US dollar, mm. um, you, you just pull up. Aussie yen against it, and it can often be orders of magnitude greater in terms of the fall. So if it's down one and a half percent against the greenback, uh, it can be down two and a half uh, or three um, against the yen. That's the risk you play when you're doing a funding currency, and you've got a carry trade on, and you're uh, that's you can you can go and get. Lots of upside, but when things go awry, the uh, the downside is uh, is rapid. You know, Aussies uh, goes up by the stairs and down by the uh, the elevators. The, yeah, uh, the absolutely. Same goes. Uh, very quickly, um, the uh, GDP uh, quarterly GDP numbers for the March quarter are coming out in a couple of weeks' time. We got the first partials this week, did we? We did. Yeah. Um, so um, the few uh, people out there talking about so there's increasingly a bit of noise about. Some drags and not going to be um, maybe a stonking number, um, but uh, there's a few people now st- starting to say maybe we there's a faint possibility of a negative print, uh, which is extraordinary. Look, I, I certainly don't think you could rule it out uh, at this point. Uh, we we actually are just finalising our numbers, so uh, we might have some by the time we wrap this up. But uh, if you think about what do we what do we know so far? Okay, so we know that retail sales volumes in Q1 were weak, up 0.1, as David said before. Uh, that makes up about 40% of consumption, and consumption's about 60% of GDP. So that sort of indicates the consumption side will be uh, soft, not soft, not negative, but soft. Uh, and we know that's important. And then the construction work done data uh, this week uh, had very weak housing uh, construction numbers. Now We also had uh, Queensland, the um, storms up there. Some of that may be weather-related. The weakness was actually in Queensland and New South Wales. And remember, uh, the New South Wales actually had a very wet uh, February, March, right? So there might be right. some weather-related uh, impact from that. Uh, but, uh, you know, we haven't had the balance of payments yet. We'll get those early next week. But that suggests that um, net exports probably detracted uh, from growth that, in Q1 yeah, as well. Yeah, that's, that's the one that I'm looking at very mm. closely because I've got to – this is – I remember writing yesterday about, you know, there's potential that there's ever so small chance that we might go and get a, a negative quarter. And I remember writing exactly kind of the same kind of stuff before the September quarter last mm. year. Well, we did. And this is how it started. And, and with all the weather disruptions that we saw during the late part of that quarter, mm. uh, net exports, you know, if that could be a real surprise. And if it's a downside surprise, uh, look out because that could go and override any little like, increase you'll see from uh, from consumption and the like. Well, I think you've got to look at your net exports in conjunction with your stocks data, though. That's the only thing when it's weather related. You know, obviously your net exports can be very weak, but you, you might see some increase in stocks. Uh, but look, it is looking like certainly a soft number, and you, you couldn't rule out a negative number, as, as David said. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is, of course, that Q2 will have the Cyclone Debbie effect. So you sort of 
sort of building up for this week Q1, but we kind of think that Q2 is going to be a little bit weak as well, well right? So importantly, let's look at right now. So the high-frequency data, uh, kind of basically okay, I think, services, PMIs, uh, manufacturing PMIs. Yeah, I mean, all right. the NAB business surveys at post-GFC highs, right, for conditions and for confidence. Yeah. Employment data has been good. ANZ job ads, which has the highest correlation with the unemployment rates, actually been quite strong. Did, Consumer did, confidence has been weak, yeah. you know, that's, but, but we sort of know that. Yeah, a bit of a sharp intake of breath when we saw the numbers on consumer confidence the last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, this week looks a l- stabilised a little bit, but look, the trend has clearly been uh, lower. I think one of the interesting things at the moment is that uh, it's we've got elevated business confidence, but actually quite weak trend in consumer confidence. So one of the questions we've been asking is, you know, they generally move in sync because generally when business conditions are good, businesses are employing and that's important for consumer confidence. So, you know, do business conditions tank and catch up to how weak consumer confidence is or does consumer confidence back uh, bounce back? And historically, generally, consumer confidence will bounce back to where business confidence is. But it's a question mark at the moment. So just for the benefit of our listeners, uh, ANZ and, and Joe's team uh, do uh, this the, the, the um, authoritative now uh, consumer confidence survey every Tuesday morning uh, at, uh, at 9.30 a.m. it comes out. You'll um, always be able to read about it through uh, ANZ and uh, and on Business Insider. Um, David usually covers it. Um, look, uh, this has been a really great chat. Um, uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details uh, podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guests this week um, have been uh, uh, David Scott, as always. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Uh, Joanne, thanks so much for your time and your insights. Pleasure. Always happy to be here. Uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're all on Twitter individually. It's David underscore Scott and Masters underscore Joanne. Uh, and myself, Paul Colgan. We'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.